This is the Amazing Starts Here podcast. Today, Billy and I chat with Robert Ford, who's the radio broadcaster for the Houston Astros. But he has some big-time Mets, Queens, and Brooklyn ties. He and Billy take a, a bit of a trip down memory lane with the Queens Kings, who, I'm Billy, I'm, I'm sure you can agree, nobody's heard of or remembers the Queens Kings, but stops with the Queens Kings, stops with the Binghamton Mets, and uh, I think you were surprised today with, with how Robert was able to, I guess, show you the, the, the good old days a little bit. The Queens Kings are like a B-side deep cut that nobody really knows unless you're a true <laughs> fan. So they were the team that moved from St. Catharines in, uh, in 2000 to play on the ca- campus of St. John's University before, uh, as, as a Toronto Blue Jays affiliate, before coming to mm-hmm. Coney Island as a Mets affiliate the 2001 season. Um, so, Robert, the fact that this is A, 20-plus years ago, um, and he was just getting started, and he remembers everybody and the names and what they were doing, and, um, you know, we... we we call this show "Amazing Starts Here," and uh, it's not just the players; it's it's the people too. So this was a this was a pretty cool conversation for sure. He's even wearing his Queens Kings baseball ink shirt. It's it's amazing. Uh, our conversation with Robert Ford. If you if you love the Mets, if you love some of this nerdy baseball history, you'll love this. And of course, if you're a broadcaster like myself, you'll love it too. It's our conversation with Robert Ford. So, Robert, I'd like to take you back to the year 2000. I sound like a Jonas brother, unfortunately, when I when I say something like like that. The Queens Kings. Most people have no idea who the Queens Kings are, but they were the Cyclones franchise before the Cyclones in 2001. And you were the broadcaster at St. John's University. A lot to unpack. What was that like and what the heck was going on, honestly, with the Queens Kings? Well... Well, just to correct you on one thing, I wasn't the broadcaster, and nobody was the broadcaster for the Queens Kings. They did not have radio. So the way that all kind of came about for me, you know, I was a student at Syracuse University, and I, you know, I was a broadcast journalism major. I didn't realize that play-by-play was what I wanted to do until about the latter part of my sophomore year. So my sophomore year in college would have been 98, 99. Um, and with the way, I mean, Syracuse obviously has produced a lot of uh, broadcasters and play-by-play people. Um, and part of the reason is they have a great student station, WAR, uh, and, you know, there's a whole play-by-play progression there. However, you kind of have to walk in the door your first day at Syracuse uh, and say, I want to do play-by-play to really get a chance to do some games for WAR because, they have a whole, I mean, it's a whole hierarchy and a whole system. And, you know, you, you start off as a producer and then you do pre and post and, you know, all this stuff. Uh, so I knew that that avenue wasn't available to me. So I, I had to figure out other things, other ways to try and get on the air. And I knew I wanted to do baseball. I wanted to do other sports too, but baseball was number one for me. That's always been my favorite sport. And so I tried to figure out, okay, so how can I get a minor league baseball team to get me to call their games? And I, so this, that uh, summer after my sophomore year, 1999, I had sent some, I had uh, uh, contacted a few minor league teams uh, trying to see if I could, you know, get a job somehow. Uh, one of the teams that I heard back from was the New Jersey Cardinals, which no longer exists. They were in the New York Penn League at the time. 
and they were ready to offer me an internship. However, I didn't have a car. As a matter of fact, I, I'm trying to think. Yeah, actually, that was the first year I did have my driver's license at that point, but uh, I didn't have a car. It was middle of nowhere, New Jersey. I had no way of getting there. Um, and so that just kind of died. But I, I found out that the Yankees were putting a minor league team in Staten Island uh, for the 1999 season. So um, when I got back from college, I contacted the team. They said, we're having a job fair um, next week. And, you know, this is when it is. So I was like, well, let me see what this is about. And again, I knew very little about minor league baseball. I had gone to a few games up at the at Syracuse at the AAA stadium there. Uh, that was my first exposure to minor league baseball, what that was like or anything. I really knew nothing about minor league baseball or working in the minors. So I go to this job fair with the Staten Island Yankees, which was a trek because, you know, they had that stadium uh, right that you could walk to from the uh, Staten Island Ferry, but they hadn't opened that stadium yet. It was still being built. So their stadium at the time was at the College of Staten Island, which was about a 20 or 30 minute bus ride from the Staten Island Ferry Terminal at St. George. Uh, and so while I'm taking this long subway ride, then a ferry ride, then a bus ride. And I mean, I, you know, I, I live in the Bronx. It's where I grew up. Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking the whole time, I'm like, yeah, this may not work out. Uh, and I already had a job lined up for the summer, but I figured, well, let me see what this is about. So I go and it was a job fair for people who wanted to work for as game day staff, do concessions and things like that. Um, that didn't really appeal to me because I knew if I was doing concessions, I wouldn't get to watch any of the games. And to me, what's the point of being at a baseball stadium if you don't get to see any of the baseball? Uh, so I remember I interviewed with someone with the Staten Island Yankees. I don't remember if it was a general manager or who it was. And, you know, I told him, yeah, you know, I'm interested in working minor league baseball. I want to do you know, be a broadcaster at some point, uh, maybe intern. And so he told me, um, he was like, yeah, this really isn't what this is for. He's like, I recommend if you want to intern for a team next year, you need to start contacting teams like beginning of the year, like around January, February. So I was like, okay. So uh, took the long bus ride, ferry ride, a long subway ride back home. Um and, uh, and actually, if I remember correctly, Staten Island Yankees did offer me a game day position, but I turned it down because it just didn't make any sense. Uh, and so then the next year, I found out that the Mets had purchased a New York Pin League team and they were moving it to New York City. Um, and it was eventually going to be in Coney Island in a stadium that had yet to be built uh, for the 2000 season. Even though I grew up in the Bronx, I was a Mets fan. Um, and so... I was like, okay, well, let me see if I could figure out how I could work for this team. And so I don't know how familiar you guys are and, and the people listening are with the history of kind of how the Brooklyn Cyclones came into being. But initially, the plan was they would build a temporary stadium on the parade grounds at Prospect Park. Um, but then the community opposed it because the parade grounds, it has soccer fields and youth fields. And the Mets pitch was, hey, we'll build this temporary stadium. Um, maybe you'll cut off some access. You'll have one less field to, or what have you. But then after we build the stadium, it's only going to be for a year and then we'll tear it down and we'll, uh, totally redo the soccer fields and make all these fields even better. But that wasn't enough for the people, uh, in the round prospect park. So now they had to figure out where they were going to play. And I was following all of this online and the internet, you know, was still dial up at the time. And it wasn't easy to, to find information about a minor league team that didn't exist yet. 
Um, and I remember at one point they were talking about maybe playing their home games at Shea Stadium uh, when the Mets were on the road and, and trying to figure that out. I mean, there were a few different things that were discussed. And then finally, and I don't even remember how I found this out, but it was determined that they were going to play on the campus of St. John's University. They were going to renovate their stadium um, and play at St. John's. Uh, so I found this out. I still had no way of contacting this team, which I don't even think had a name at this point. Um, and so I somehow I found a phone number and it was a phone number. No, that's what it was. I think I called the Shea Stadium switchboard and basically asked, you know, I was looking for, you know, information about this minor league team. So I called the Mets um, and they gave me a phone number. And so I called the phone number and it and it was a voicemail. And I don't even think there was much detail in the voicemail. So I didn't even know where this was going or who was going to hear it or what. And so I just left the message on the voicemail saying, hey, I'm a college student, I'm, you know, looking to work for this minor league team. I'm interested in broadcasting, whatever. So um, I don't know if it was maybe a week later or something like that. Uh, Steve Cohen called me and um, said, um, yeah, we are um, we're hiring interns. Uh, would you like to interview to be an intern? And this was right after I had just finished my uh, junior year at Syracuse. So I was, it was early May. Um, the season was going to start late June. So I, you know, I had just, I had just gotten home after finals. And so um, drove out to St. John's, interviewed with Steve Cohen. And he said to me, you know, and I, you know, expressed my interest in doing play by play. And he said, well, we're not going to have radio. Um, but, um, you know, you'll get a chance to do a little bit of everything. And since I know you're interested in broadcasting, if I hire you, I will make sure I get you in front of a microphone whenever I can. So it's like, okay, fine. I'm in, I have my foot in the door. Uh, and so what wound up happening was during the day, um, I was doing sales, which I am terrible at, as I learned that summer, um, and did not like at all. And, um, for the games, I was on field MC. Um, and doing the promotions and contests and everything. And then for about a third of the games, I was the, the PA announcer because they had a PA announcer. He, um, if I remember correctly, he had a, he had a day job and there were games he couldn't make. So I it wound up being about a third of the 76 games that the Queens Kings played, or I guess 38 games, 38 home games, uh, about a third of those home games that I, that I wound up doing PA for. So yes, I was intern slash PA announcer slash on field MC. For the uh, 2000 Queens Kings. So you'll you'll find this interesting because this is like this story is what we hear anytime there's involved with Steve hiring somebody. The the GM of the Milwaukee Brewers, David Stearns, was hired by Steve to be an operations intern. So he thought he was going to be, you know, operations like baseball operations. He showed up and Steve hands him a broom. And he's, he's working, he's working, you know, and David, David Stearns was assistant GM in Houston before he became the Brewers general manager. So I know David and he's, he's told me that story. He was like, yeah, I thought, you know, I mean, he's, I think he went to Harvard. I'm like, you spent a, I was like, you, you went to Harvard. You spent a summer cleaning up the stadium in Brooklyn. Are you kidding me? Yeah. He, he showed up one day. He told Steve Cohen told all the interns to, to show up wearing clothes ready to clean. So he, David showed up wearing a Harvard T-shirt 
And our maintenance company at the time was named Harvard. So Steve saw Harvard, thought <laughs> Harvard, and it improved. That's great. That's and, fantastic. I mean, to his credit, the dude, he stuck it out for the season and uh, obviously has gone on to much bigger and better things. Uh, but I always, that year with, with Queens has always been interesting to me because that was sort of the dividing point of the New York Penn League and what it, it was and then sort of what it became before uh, going away uh, after the uh, 2019 season, I guess. But you had teams like Utica and you had Pittsfield and, um, you know, Staten Island was playing on a college campus and the eventual Brooklyn team was playing on a college campus. So that was always a very interesting year to me uh, in terms of the haves and have nots. You know, the, a few years later, you have Aberdeen coming into the league and they have this beautiful stadium and Tri-City coming and they have a beautiful stadium. Um, so that year, I think, was always very special to some of the people that we have here. Um, you know, Steve is the, the GM and we had a guy, Kevin Jimenez, who worked with us for for a long time, too. And he always spoke uh, glowingly of his time, the good old days with Queens. So I always find it interesting hearing stories like yours of everything you sort of went through to get into this position. So uh, what was sort of the 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 day to day like, you know, in Queens in terms of, you know, how many people were there and, you know, what was the sort of game day operation like? So the way it was set up. And again, they were trying to do this bare bones operation because they knew where they were only going to be at St. John's for one year. And they were going to have the new stadium on Coney Island and move the team there for 2001. Uh, so there were only three full time employees, Steve Cohen, the general manager, uh, Kevin Jimenez, who you mentioned. Um, and I forget what his exact title was, but he handled a lot of the, the merchandising and marketing stuff. And um, there was another guy by the name of Steve Gresh who was in charge of stadium operations and maintenance. And I believe, and, and they all wound up moving on to, to the Cyclones the next year. Um, so they had those three full-time employees, uh, which is not a lot, even for a New York Penn League team. And they hired a ton of interns. Um, there were probably, I'm trying to think, there were probably about six or seven of us. Um, and there was a core group because they hired some more as the season went on. Most of the interns were St. John's students, and I was one of the few who was not a St. John's student. Um, so I remember we had one, uh, Rose D'Innocenti, so I still keep in touch with, and she had uh, assisted um, in the uh, sports information department at St. John's. So she was basically in charge of media relations, um, and that was something I was also interested in. So I used to help her out, so I would write game day stories and press releases and stuff. I wrote some stuff for the game program. Uh, but Rose oversaw that. Um, we had another intern, Maria Legetza, who I also still keep in touch with. She was uh, she had worked at the St. John's campus paper and had done layout and graphics and stuff. And she knew how to work page maker. Uh, so she was in charge of like a lot of the graphics and put together the program and, and things like that. Uh, but all of us, we'd have to come in and the offices were in a trailer by the stadium on the campus of St. John's. We had to come in. Um, you were supposed to be doing sales and making cold calls. Again, I was bad at it um, and wasn't as focused on it as I should have once I realized that this was really boring and I had no interest in this. Uh, and uh, so we had, we'd, you know, be there during the day taking calls and, uh, you know, getting ready. You know, if it was a game day, we'd be getting ready for the game. And, um, you know, I would, uh, you know, we'd have the, we'd get the rosters together. I'd go over to uh, the, the, the clubhouse, which was in, a locker room at what was then called Alumni Hall, which is now Karnasek Arena, which, you know, St. John's on campus uh, basketball arena. That's where the, the clubhouses were. And so I'd go there and get the lineup from 
our manager, Eddie Rodriguez, who, who's coached in the big league since and has had a pretty successful career in baseball. Um, and, you know, get the manager from the other or get the uh, lineup from the other manager. And, um, you know, we'd have to do stuff to get the stadium ready and get promotions ready, things like that. All stuff that I know you two guys are probably familiar with having worked in minor league baseball. Uh, yeah, we were we were handling all of that. Um, and we probably got to do more than your average intern just because it was basically all interns. And we actually got paid pretty well for being interns. I can't remember how much it was now, but, um, you know, I mean, you know, a lot of people, I mean, it's a little different now, but especially back then, there were a lot of the internships didn't pay at all. Um, it was for college credit. And that was not the case with this. We actually got paid a weekly salary. And, um, it, you know, it's actually all things considered. It wasn't too bad. Um, it was the summer I turned 21. So it gave me plenty of money to go drink at the bars across the street from St. John's campus after Queens Kings games. Uh, and so, yeah, that was kind of our, our day to day. Um, and Steve would be trying to push us to make more sales and all that. And, you know, and honestly, and I wasn't the only one who figured out I wasn't a salesperson. I think um, all but maybe one or two of the interns, uh, we were not good at sales and we really didn't do a whole lot of it. Um, so we weren't great employees in that regard. But all the other stuff we I thought we, you know, we did a good job with, especially since none of us had any experience in minor league baseball. We knew nothing about it. Um, and uh, I mean, it's it's so funny now people growing up in New York City take minor league baseball for granted. They can, in addition to going to Mets and Yankees games, they could go to Brooklyn Cyclones game. They could, you know, there, there was a Staten Island Yankees and, you know, their team's just north of New York City now. And uh, none of that existed back then. So this was like a, a, a world that nobody who grew up in New York City knew anything about at the time. And we were all just kind of learning on the fly. A page maker drop in. That is a throwback. <laughs> wow. Uh so obviously you wanted to get into broadcasting. Was there anything with, hey, we're going to be in Brooklyn next year, Coney Island? Did you find an opening there? Because, they, of course, Warner Fusel pops in. But uh, was, was there daylight there for you? I was hoping there would be. Um, I mean, I didn't know, you know what was going to happen. I mean, obviously this is going to be the, a big deal, them moving into this stadium in Coney Island. And then, you know, obviously being the first – professional baseball team in Brooklyn since the Dodgers left. Um, so the next summer, um, you know, 2001, I graduated from Syracuse and I, you know, I was still in touch with Steve and, um, you know, had contacted him about, you know, what they were doing for broadcasting. And initially I think I kind of got the runaround a little bit. And I think part of it was they didn't, they, they weren't sure. Um, they were trying to figure out where they were going to broadcast their games and find a station, which is not easy to do in New York City. Um, and so I remember I went down to the stadium, Coney Island. It, was, it wasn't even completely done. They were still working on it, but the offices were built. And I went down and um, talked to Steve. And it was like the first week I was back from, from college after graduation. Um, and I was, and I mean, at this point, I mean, I wanted to be in broadcasting, but I just needed a job. You know, I had to figure something out. Um, since I wasn't going to school anymore. And so I remember, you know, Steve met with me and we chatted and, um, and he told me, he's like, well, Warner Fussell has agreed to do our games. And I knew who Warner Fussell was. I grew up watching This Week in Baseball, which he was on. And so I was like, well, I guess I really can't compete with that. Um, <laughs> and I don't remember, I think there was maybe at one point a possibility that maybe he'd have an intern or something like that, but that wound up not happening. Um, but I, 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 from what I remember, I figured out pretty quickly that, you know, this wasn't an avenue that 
was was going to happen. I wasn't going to get to call Brooklyn Cyclones games. Um, but yeah, it was definitely something. Obviously, I was interested in and inquired about, um, and you know, talked to Steve about. And um, you know, what's funny is, uh, so it was originally Keyspan Park, right? And Keyspan is an energy company. My stepmom worked for Keyspan at the time, and I actually, she actually got, got me tickets for the first game there uh, in Brooklyn in 2001. Um, and it was one of those things, like I didn't even ask her for tickets. Uh, she was just like, hey, I have tickets for the first game. Do you want them? Sure. Um, and I was going to go with a friend of mine who wound up not being able to make it. So I wound up going by myself. I kept score of it. I still have it in my in a scorebook here somewhere. But yeah, I was actually at the first Brooklyn Cyclones game. And that was pretty cool because, I mean, having seen what it was, in Queens in 2000 when we didn't draw well. And also another problem in Queens was they put lights on the field at St. John's, which they had never had. And so the community was opposed to that. And there were a lot of people linked. That was that also made sales difficult in Queens because there was community opposition because people were concerned about the lights and the night games and the traffic and all these things that wound up not being a big deal because the Queens Kings didn't draw very well. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was cool to see the Brooklyn Cyclones and, and what they wound up becoming and obviously have become even more since. It's there's a lot there that, that I, as a broadcaster, I just like, I get cringe worthy. Like you had like back-to-back summers where, yeah, you might broadcast and then you don't broadcast. Like for someone who wants to get into broadcasting that just like drives you crazy. How did you stick with it enough to, you know, have faith to, to that there would be broadcasting on the horizon? Cause you know, life does creep in. I need a job. I need some, <laughs> I need some money. So this is kind of a selfish question for me, but. Well, I think, um, you know, I mean, the the short answer is I didn't know any better and I was just going to keep trying until I figured it out. Um, I mean, that's, you know, I felt like, you know, each year I made more and more progress once I figured out play by play is what I wanted to do. You know, 1999, summer 99, I didn't work anywhere, but I found out, okay, if this is something I want to do, I need to look into it earlier in the year, 2000. You know, I wound up interning for a minor league baseball team. It's like, okay, uh, now I have an idea. And that was eye-opening for me because it gave me an idea of how all that worked and insight into the minor league. So then the next year, um, you know, I was trying to find something, and I still didn't really have a baseball demo. I hadn't done any baseball play-by-play on air. Um, and so what I wound up doing was I got a job uh, working for the New York Bureau of the Yamiuri Shimbun, which is a Japanese newspaper. And... Uh, I do not know any Japanese, but all the Japanese uh, reporters in the New York Bureau had American assistants. Uh, so I was the assistant to the sports writer for the New York Bureau of the Yamiuri Shimbun. And being the assistant to the sports writer meant that you covered a lot of baseball. It was 2001. That was Ichiro's first season um, coming over from Japan. Um, and there were a handful of other Japanese players. Um, also covered, got to cover other sports. I got to go to the Super Bowl uh, the year that I worked there, that was the first Patriots Super Bowl win uh, when they were underdogs against the St. Louis Rams. Um, it's all making me sound old now. Um, and, uh, you know, got to cover the uh, the World Series that year. I was there for 9-11, um, and I covered the World Series uh, and all the home Yankees home playoff games in 2001. Um, so I was still involved in sports, even though I wasn't quite doing play-by-play. The other thing that I did that summer of 2001 – was I would go to games at Yankee and Shea Stadium with my tape recorder and, uh, again, making me sound old, a tape recorder, and uh, do play-by-play into a tape recorder from the stands. Um, And I put together a demo of what I thought sounded best from uh, those games. 
and that I did in the first game that I did, or the first call on my demo was my call of Mike Piazza's home run that wanted to be the game winner for the Mets in the first game in New York after 9-11 against the Braves. Um, and uh, because we, I had a press credential for the Mets because the Mets had Shoyoshi Shinjo, a Japanese outfielder, um, and that was his first year. So we had a credential uh, at Shea Stadium. So I, I went to the game and with, got in with my credential and snuck up to the upper deck and called the game from there uh, into a tape recorder. Um, and uh, I went to the winter meetings with that demo in 2001. The winter meetings were in Boston that year and um, applied for every broadcasting job there was. There weren't very many and got uh, an interview with the Yakima Bears, the Northwest League, uh, which was basically the complement league to the New York Penn League, short season league out in the, in the West, on the West Coast, and um, got interviewed there and got hired before the winter meetings were over by the Yakima Bears for the 2002 season. Here I am now. This is my 20th year in baseball and uh, doing broadcasting. I mean, that's an unbelievable story. Your, your demo is Mike Piazza's potentially the most memorable home run in the history of the franchise. Um, that's 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 some de- that's some demo reel for sure. So and there's about seventy five thousand people that said that they were at the first Brooklyn Cyclones game, <laughs> and, and we can only see so yeah. many. So this is this is, we might need to see some documentation <laughs> just to make sure that. <laughs> I mean, I did keep score. I don't I don't know if I still have the ticket stuff, but I did keep score. Yeah, between Piazza's home run and Edgar Rodriguez's home run in the the first Cyclones game, that's a it's a couple milestones <laughs> in Mets history. Um, so you, you get started now. What what was that like with with Yakima and getting started out there and uh, then transitioning, obviously, up, up the ladder and getting eventually to, to Binghamton and part of the Mets family. So I, um, you know, I'd never been to the West Coast when I got that job. Um, I bought my first car cash, uh, 1997 Saturn, and uh, drove it cross country to Yakima, Washington. Um, and uh, you know, it was the first time I'd seen uh, a lot of the, the country, um, you know, doing that ca- cross country drive. Um, and which is a really fun, if no one, if you haven't done it, I mean, it's a really fun way to see the country driving cross country. And, um, so anyway, I, you know, drove out to Yakima and, um, it was 76 games in 80 days and, you know, go figure it out. And I did all of them by myself. Uh, so, I mean, I always tell young broadcasters who ask me for advice when they're starting out, um, and getting that first job, I say, you know, you need try to get better every single day. And I mean, that's legitimately what I did that first year in Yakima. Literally every single day I was trying to find, you know, figure out different ways to do things. I was tickering with my preparation, with what I did on the air. I I had no idea how to put together a pregame show or a postgame show. I had to figure all that out. Um, And so, yeah, it was just a process. And it really was almost like being in in a lab for me, in this broadcasting lab. And every day I was coming in and trying new experiments and trying new theories and seeing what worked, what didn't work. And uh, after that year, I knew two things. I knew that I wanted, this is what I wanted to do. And I knew that I could be pretty good at it. I knew I wasn't great at it, but I knew I could be pretty good at it, that I would, you know, I would be willing to put in the work to to become better at it. Um, but I mean, I had a blast that summer. The 2002 Yakima Bears, Arizona Diamondbacks affiliate, they were not very good. They had a 22 game losing streak, which I believe still tied for uh, longest losing streak in the minor leagues, at least since 1990. Um, and when you only play 76 games, I mean, losing 22 in a row is bad enough anyway, but when you only play 76 games, I mean, you just lost a third of your season 
basically by losing 22 in a row. Um, but I mean, I, I still, I mean, it was still great. I was calling baseball every day, um, you know, around baseball players and, and talking baseball with people. And our manager was Mike Aldretti, who played in the big leagues. Our pitching coach was Mel Stottlemyer Jr., who's now the pitching coach for um, for the Marlins. And then Mike Aldretti is a coach with, with Oakland. Um, and Jay Gaynor was our hitting coach who played, uh, he was on the uh, Colorado Rockies their first year in 93. And I was incredibly intimidated by all of them because they all played in the big leagues and I had never really met any big leaguers. Uh, so, but yeah, it was a fun summer. I learned a lot and um, it, it really laid the foundation for everything that I've done since then. So it's so funny too, because I, I know that your first year in, in Houston, you're the what, 51 and 111 uh, was, was the year that you had to go through, which is probably a broadcaster's. I would say worst nightmare, but 22 straight uh, is crazy. So uh, that whole experience, though, that people get when they're right up front with uh, coaches, managers, players, how is it this year or last year to this year where you can't go in the clubhouse, you can't feel out guys, you can't hang out around the cage? It's something that we we missed out on last year, but this year we're thinking, hey, we're going to do a bunch of Zoom pregame shows, which is cool, but it's not the experience. So now that you've done it for about a year plus, what is it? What is it like? Um, it, it's lousy, uh, yeah. but you make the, you make the best of it. Um, I mean, I think that's really what, what it's all about. You know, what's tough is, yeah, like you said, there's just so much information you glean just by being around and getting to know guys, um, you know, being in the manager's office. Because, uh, you know, I interview the manager every day uh, for pregame. And um, I remember when the Astros hired Dusty Baker, I was thinking, man, this is going to be really cool. I, I didn't really know Dusty Baker at all, but I'm like, this is going to be really cool. I mean, this guy has done just about everything. Everybody told me you're going to love this guy. He's fantastic. Um, he's going to be great to deal with. Um, and he was, you know, in spring training before he got shut down last year. And then, you know, we're relegated to Zoom interviews with him. So I still interview him every day one on one, but it's over Zoom. I'll usually banter with him a little bit or at least get some information, um, you know, before we start recording. So that that's helped. And um, he's he's so easy to talk to and such a, an easygoing guy um, that he's made it a lot less hard than it, it would be normally. Um, but, yeah, it's still um, really difficult. Um, you know, like a lot of the players, obviously, since the Astros have had kind of the same core for a few years, I know those guys, but there are a lot of guys that I don't know. Um, you know, the, we're recording this on the day that Jake Odorizzi is making his first Astros start. I've, I haven't talked to him since he's been in Houston. Um, you know, I, I don't really know him all that well. I did cover him a little bit when he was in Kansas City early in his career, but I, you know, I haven't got it, you know, I, and everybody tells me he's a fantastic guy, great to talk to, and very, very accommodating. But I mean, I, I won't, you know, hopefully at some point later this season, I'll get to find out, but you know, at this point, that's just not, that's just not the reality. So yeah, it's not great. Um, but you know, the hope is that we get back at least close to where things were before, uh, you know, here in the next few months as guys get vaccinated, um, teams get fully vaccinated, you know, and I've gotten my first shot. Uh, I actually got on opening day. Um, so, you know, I'll be fully vaccinated probably by, by mid May, and, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, we get in the May, June, July, things start to return back to what we're used to. Yeah, we're all fingers crossed for, for that here. You know, we, we've missed baseball. We haven't had a game in 
by the time we play, it'll be 600 days. So uh, it's getting, we, we all miss it and, and the way that it, that it was, for sure. Um, now, w- one question that I had, and I've always had for, for broadcasters, um, you know, we're, we're lucky here in New York where um, Gary Cohen and Howie Rose, they are Mets true and true. They've been Mets fans their whole lives. So when, the, when they're broadcasting, um, you know, they're very knowledgeable. They're, they're, they're fans. Um, for, for someone like yourself who grew up rooting for a different team, when you get put into a situation where you're now, you know, the voice of the Astros, how difficult is it to, you know, make yourself authentic and, and make yourself someone that the fans um, buy into that, all right, this is one of us now kind of thing? I mean, it, it takes time uh, is, is, is what it comes down to. Uh, because, yeah, I think so. This is what happens when you start, when you become the voice of a team. Um, there are going to be people who hated the people before you and are just thrilled you're not those people. And I mean, and I, I came after Milo Hamilton, who's a Hall of Famer. Um, and, uh, you know, at that point, he was only doing home games and they had two other broadcasters, Brett Dolan and Dave Raymond. Um, and Dave now does the uh, Texas Rangers on TV. Uh, and, um, you know, they did all the road games together and did home games with, with Milo and the Astros. Milo retired after the 2012 season. Astros decided not to bring back Brett Dolan and Dave Raymond. It was new ownership for that 2012 season, decided to do things differently. Uh, but, yeah, so you have fans who hated those guys and are just happy you're not them. And you're going to have fans who love those guys and are like, who's this new guy? Um, he's, he's, he's awful because he's not Milo or Brad or Dave. And then you have, which is probably a larger part of the fan base, and I think most of us realize, people who are just kind of like in the middle. They're either – fine with whatever, you know, hey, there are things I like about this guy, uh, you know, there are things I don't like, but that was true with the other guys, you know, and that's probably most of the fans, but it's the the first two groups that are probably the most vocal, um, on especially on social media. And I think it helped me that I had done four years in Kansas City, working for their flagship station, uh, the Royals flagship station, doing uh, post-game call-in shows, and that was when Twitter was still very much in its infancy. I joined Twitter when I was in Kansas City. Uh, my first year there in, what was that, 2009. Um, and so I I think that really helped prepare me for, hey, these are the sort of things you're going to hear. You're going to get criticism, you know, being around a Major League Baseball team and being a, a, a an on-air personality. Uh, so that prepared me for, for what happened in Houston. But, I mean, the fans, for the most part, were extremely accommodating. And Houston's, I mean, there are people from everywhere in Houston. And I think people are very welcoming and, and very accommodating. And I think that really helped me. Um, you know, make that transition. But yeah, it takes time. I mean, I, I think the other big part of it too is you can't pretend to be something you're not. So I'm not going to pretend that I grew up an Astros fan. I'm just not. I'm not going to pretend that in 1986, I was rooting for the Astros in the NLCS. Um, I'm just, I'm just not. And I think, you know, and there's some fans who, you know, may not be happy, but, you know, I think most fans like respect that. Like, okay, hey, he grew up in New York City. Of course, he's not an Astros fan, um, you know, and, and I mean, I still, you know, on Twitter, I mean, I, I can get vocal sometimes about, you know, I'm a Syracuse fan. I'm a Knicks fan. I'm still a New York Giants fan. Um, and I'll tweet about those things from time to time, um, you know, and I mean, I don't dislike any of the, the Houston teams, but I'm not, you know, I'm not a Rockets fan or, a, you know, and yeah, I mean, 94, 94 did not feel great as a Knicks fan playing the Rockets and Rockets fans have reminded me of that repeatedly, but that's okay. I mean, that's fun to me. Um, 
And so I think it's it's important to, to not try to be something or try to don't try to be something that you're not. Um, and I think fans respond to that. And then I think over time, you learn more about the history of the team you're calling games for just from being around. And I mean, I and I, you know, have really made an effort to talk to people who knew about the Astros history. When I started, Bill Brown was still doing games on TV and uh, Brownie called Astros games on television for about 30 years. So he had a tremendous amount of institutional knowledge. Uh, Milo Hamilton was still around my first few years. I would I would pick his brain about various things. Um, and you just you just kind of you just learn over time. And I did the same that being in Kansas City prepared me for that as well, because it was the same thing. I didn't know anything about the Royals history. I wasn't a Royals fan. I mean, I knew some basics, um, but, you know, I wasn't a Royals fan and I and I had to learn. And by the time I, I had finished four years there, I had a pretty good grasp of uh, Royals history and, and, and what was important to the fans. And, you know, some of the key moments and key players. And now, you know, this is my ninth year in Houston. Um, and I think I have a pretty good handle on that. Is it as good as someone who's been a lifelong Astros fan? Probably not. Uh, but I mean, I think it's, I think it's, I, I think my knowledge is very good. And I'm in a position where if there's something I don't know or need more information about, I, I have people that I can ask. It is uh, enlightening to know that I, you know, someone uh, from the Bronx, I thought, okay, maybe, maybe he's a Yankees fan. But then that Altuve homer off Chapman, you know, you jumped out of your chair. I'm going, something's a little off, but. You're a Mets fan, so I, I guess someone who's internally built. Hey, he could have hit Altuve could have hit that home run off of Edwin Diaz or Dylan Batances or Seth Lugo, and I still would have jumped out of my chair. You know, honestly, you know, when it comes to fandom, you know, what's interesting is because a lot of people have said to me, you know, I was in Binghamton for four years, like, oh, that must have been great being a Mets fan, you know, and it was, but like, I didn't. I mean, I followed the New York Mets, obviously. But not as closely as I did when I was a fan. I was so focused on Binghamton. I followed the Mets more in terms of how it affected Binghamton and the guys who went from Binghamton to the Mets. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the Mets now, um, I mean, I wouldn't say they're just another baseball team to me, but like, I mean, it's not the team I grew up with. Um, you know, it's the, I mean, I, you know, I, the height of my Mets fandom was the, you know, mid to late 80s through the 1990s. And I mean, obviously, this, you know, it's a much different team now. Um, so it doesn't even feel like the same. Like, it doesn't feel like, you know, hey, these are the same guys I grew up rooting for. I mean, it's, I mean, it's completely different. I mean, they don't even play in the same stadium. So um, I think that probably has helped in that regard. Missed out on David Wright and Binghamton by this, by this much. That's by that much, the year before me. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that, that would have been a, a cool, cool guy as a Mets man to hang your hat on. I, I just have a, a one final question, just on the broadcasting side, because this year I, I, I think I saw you on Twitter. You had heard that uh, broadcasters in the minor leagues aren't part of the traveling party, so they kind of have to, you know, hoof it themselves a little bit. Uh, what I watching an MILB feed is tough enough. Having to sit in a stadium at home and maybe re- recreating it remotely uh, has got to be near impossible. And the authenticity of sitting in the stadium that's not where the game is. How challenging has that been for someone like you? You're just sitting watching a screen like you're in your living room. Can, can you, did it take time to get up for that, uh, an, a, a fake performance, if you will? Yeah, I mean, it's tough because, yeah, you're not there and you're used to being there. Um, and even the home games last year with no fans, um, I was really worried about what my energy level would be like. But what I found was, particularly for the home games, was – once the game starts, it's baseball. And obviously the crowd reaction makes a difference. But, you know, you get 
I, at least I get so focused on what's going on in the game and the details of the game that, um, you know, even though there's nobody there, uh, you know, there was nobody there last year. It's still, I was, I felt like I, the energy was still there. Um, and even for the, the games off monitors for the road games, I felt like I was more or less able to, to keep the energy level at a, at a pretty good rate. Um, I think what was the toughest was the actual calling of the game and tracking the ball and tracking where runners are. And we have, you know, we have the monitor and this is the setup I think for most teams that do this in the majors, we have a monitor which shows the, the game feed, the same feed that folks are seeing on TV. And then we had a monitor with, uh, it's actually a, a huge uh, television, big screen TV that has what they call a quad box. And one box is an all nine camera, which is suspended from behind home plate. So you can see all nine players on the field, but it's one of four shots on one screen. So you can't call the game off of that screen because everybody's kind of small, but it's good for knowing where base runners are, knowing what fielders are doing when the ball's in play um, and knowing when there's shifts and things like that. Um, or if a runner's taking off on a steal, um, although nobody steals in the majors, so that's not as big of a deal. Um, and then there's another, depending on the feed, the, the other shots may be both bullpen. So you can see who's warming up. Um, and, uh, but the all nine is, is important. So you can kind of see what else is, is happening. Um, and so it's just tricky tracking the ball um, and keeping track of what's going on. I feel like calling pitches is a lot easier because I'm looking at the center from the center field camera. Uh, so that's been a lot easier. Uh, but, but yeah, ball and play has been so much tougher. I mean, I think back to probably the best example was uh, game uh, game five of the ALCS last year, uh, Astros and Rays in San Diego, Carlos Correa with the walk-off home run in the bottom of the ninth. Um, and what was tricky about that, because you see, and you watch enough baseball, you're watching the ball hit off the center field camera. And there are times when you think a ball is hit really well and it doesn't carry. And then there are times, you know, when it's the opposite. Um, so when Correa hit that ball, I thought he hit it pretty well, especially since Correa didn't even jog. As soon as he hit it, he started walking and watching it. So I'm thinking he hit it well, but I'm not sure yet. So now I got to wait until we have a view of the fielders. And then, so, you know, Correa hits it. I'm thinking, okay, it's hit pretty well, but I still have to kind of mute my call a little bit because I don't know what's about to happen. And then they show Kiermaier, and I see Kiermaier racing back. Um, and that's when I was like, okay, this is probably going to be a home run. And then I was able to kind of pump it up. But if it had happened in person, um, you know, I would have been able, as soon as the ball was hit, I would have been able to look at Kiermaier and see him turn, and I would have been able to make that call a lot quicker. I mean, I think all things considered, the call came out okay. But to me, it's still not as good as it could have been because I was doing it off a monitor as opposed to in person. In person, it would have been a lot better because I would have been able to see all the elements of the play uh, instantaneously. You lucky MLB broadcasters and, and the camera switching to the center fielder on time. That's something in the minors that we, we might strike. <laughs> that ball might be in the air a lot longer not, than normal. Not, but, you, <laughs> but, you, but, you, but you know what? That doesn't always happen as quickly as you think. Or even like say there's a line drive that's caught by the second baseman. That's a leaping grab by the second baseman it can be almost impossible to switch the camera in time for you to see it. Or sometimes there'll be a hard hit ball on the infield, the infielder will catch it, and you don't know whether they got it on a bounce, whether it was on the fly. Um, and then you can't see the umpire a lot of times, so you're not sure if he's signaling out or home run or 
what what have you. And then, or and you know, it gets really bad sometimes on check swings when they appeal down to first base or third base because sometimes it's like, are they going to show the umpire the appeal? Or sometimes they show the umpire after he's made the appeal, and then you're just like, okay, well he's walking back to the dugout, so I guess he's out. You know, like I mean. You have stuff like that. I mean, there's just so many little things that just add up that to, to make this tough. And, um, you know, the hope is um, that, you know, by the latest, by the all-star break, uh, we get to travel again. Hopefully it's sooner than that. Um, and, uh, you know, I certainly hope you guys get to get to travel uh, uh, pretty soon as well. Uh, well, Robert, we could talk to you all day. Uh, your, your experience with the, the Queens Kings. Uh, Binghamton Mets, uh, you're a Mets fan, or at least were a Mets fan back in the day, still are a little bit. Uh, thanks so much for doing this. It, it's great to talk to you, get a, kind of an inside scoop, and uh, good luck in Houston this year. All right. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys.